0: In June, a Levada poll found him the third most inspiring figure in Russia, after Putin and, of course, opposition leader Navalny. So what is it that makes Defence Minister Shoigu quite so appealing? It's the 8th day of shadowy Christmas and happy new year to all my patrons and a happy 8th of January to everyone else. So this is the third Cellcast in the series and what I want to do is look precisely at Sergei Kuzhulgetovich Shoigu Hero of the Russian Federation, Abkhaz Order of Courage Order of the Red Banner of Mongolia Nicaraguan Grand Army Cross and many many other decorations to boot. And also a figure who is constantly being referred to as a potential president, certainly one of the heaviest hitting figures within the current Russian government. And let me just go back to that Levada survey and why I think it's particularly interesting. In some ways Putin and Navalny are litmus paper choices. You nominate Putin as the most inspiring because you want to demonstrate that you're a loyalist. You nominate Navalny because you want to demonstrate that you're unhappy, you're, you're a, in a way, an opposition minded figure. You nominate Shui Gu because you want to nominate Shui Gu. And that's why it's quite interestingly significant. So let's start just with a quick little snapshot of, of, of where he arose. I mean, he was born in 1955 in Chadan, in the distant, distant Tuva Autonomous Region. Son of a local newspaper editor who then went into local politics, graduated from Krasnoyarsk Polytechnic Institute as a construction engineer. None of this necessarily demonstrates this is a guy who's really heading for the top. His profession was precisely as an engineer, a construction engineer, until in 1990 he got what was, after all, a very significant boost to his career. He moved to Moscow to become deputy chair of the Russian Federation, specifically the RSFSR, State Committee for Architecture and Construction. Not bad at all. Then in 1991, he became head of the newly formed Rescue Corps, which in due course will become the State Committee for Civil Defence, Emergency and Natural Disasters, or rather, dealing with natural disasters. This was frankly not a plum job for reasons I'll come to in a minute, but it s- demonstrates something about the capacity of Shoe to be regarded as a safe pair of hands, which also became visible in 1992 when he was very briefly deputy head of North Ossetia and Ingushetia, specifically during the period of a bloody little local Ossetian-Ingushetian conflict. So in other words, already he's been seen as the sort of person you can trust to put into difficult situations. Then he came back in 1994, became Minister of Civil Defence, etc. So in other words, the State Committee had become a ministry, MCS, the Ministry of Emergency Situations. And, again, let me just talk about why, although this was a promotion in technical terms, it was not necessarily the promotion that everyone else was clamouring for. The 1990s was a pretty miserable decade in almost every terms in Russia. It was a period particularly in which everything from simmering inter-ethnic unrest to serious, serious problems with infrastructure and poor construction led to a whole range of disasters of one form or another. Being made Minister of Emergency Situations, it's a little bit like back in the days of the Troubles being made Minister for Northern Ireland. What that meant is you are responsible for every bomb blast, every shooting, every punishment beating, every paramilitary display. So in this case, he was responsible for everything that went wrong in terms of dealing with crises. And yet, he took on what was really an array of dysfunctional agencies, the fire service, coast guards, all kinds of other groups, which had become known for terrible morale, terrible effectiveness, high levels of inefficiency and corruption. And he actually turned them around. Now, I don't think anyone would say that it's perfect, but nonetheless, the MTS today, which is very much, on, although he's no longer in charge of it, his hand-picked successor Zinichev is, the MTS today is, I would suggest, one of the more credible, effective and even relatively honest institutions within the Russian government, which is saying something. And likewise, he turned the fact that he was now responsible for his country's numerous disasters into a strange kind of political advantage. He was always there. He was there on scene, on camera, whenever things went wrong. And instead of becoming to be regarded as some kind of omen of ill fortune, he became a comforting figure. There was that sense of, it's all right, Shoigu's on it. And that worked in a really quite surprising way. And increasingly, he became a lucky charm, a totemic figure that people wanted to attach themselves to. From 2000 onwards, he was also Deputy Prime Minister. In 1996, he had actually been, as I recall, Yeltsin's election campaign manager. Remember, 1996 was the election that, to be blunt, was stolen from the communists. But the point is, there was a fairly sort of broad elite consensus that exactly it had to be stolen from the communists. He later on became head of the Unity Party, which would then merge and become a central element of United Russia. So he was doing his job on a practical, technocratic way, and yet he was also extremely active and effective in terms of being close to the power of the day, whether it was Yeltsin or, then in due course, whether it was Putin. In 2012, he... I do not say abandoned, but he left the MGS, as I say, in Zinichev's hands, to become governor of the Moscow region, obviously in a very important position. And also, interestingly, he was succeeding Boris Gromov, who was the relatively youthful general who had commanded Soviet forces as they left Afghanistan. There was a very sort of photogenic moment where he was the last soldier walking across the friendship bridge to meet his young son and so forth. And again, it says something about the extent to which you want someone who is not just a political heavy hitter in that particular position, but someone who also has a public persona that is important. Still, he was only in that position for six months. There was a scandal within the Ministry of Defence. Anatoly Serdukov, who had been caught... I mean, this is it. The corruption issues weren't a problem, but sleeping with a mistress when your actual wife is the daughter of a key Putin ally. Now, that's what gets you in trouble. Anyway, Serdyukov had to go, they needed a new defence minister, and that's where Shoigu went. And since then, well, we have seen the continuation of military reform. You know, he, he gets a lot of the credit in public, but we have to be honest, actually it was Serdyukov who really broke the ground for him. But nonetheless, this has been a successful process. There has been a huge step forward in not just the combat effectiveness of the Russian military, but also how it deals with its own people. But increasingly, it's seeking to become a more professional force in terms of high proportion of volunteers. And that means in part actually treating your soldiers decently. These are the years after all also of the Ukraine conflict, the seizure of Crimea, and then the Donbass, and Syria. And, by all accounts, and this isn't confirmed, but it seems to be fairly sort of solidly sort of advanced, Shoigu was actually opposed to the annexation of Crimea by military means. He was also opposed to the adventure in the Donbass. Now, in both cases, the orders went another way, and good soldier that he is, he followed those orders. But nonetheless, I think it's quite interesting the extent to which actually... Although his, his rhetoric is often very gung-ho, and I'll come back to that in a moment, nonetheless, you know, this is not an instinctive knee-jerk warmonger. Syria, again, there I mean there doesn't seem to have been anything like the same degree of pushback from, from Shoigu, but nonetheless he did manage to make sure that he controlled the exposure of the armed forces. He was perfectly happy to see the actual sort of ground-level grunt work being done by Wagner mercenaries whom he could basically dispense with once the fighting had sort of moved to a different stage and the Syrian military was looking better. And he was very happy to see Wagner moved out. And indeed, the defence ministry seemed to have not had a problem when Wagner got hammered by the Americans at Deir ez-Zor. So, as far as he's concerned, he wants Syria to be a defence ministry playground, as it is. I mean, Basically, it's the defence ministry, not the foreign ministry or anyone else who determines policy there but that was because he could keep it on his own terms and as a much more small scale and controllable venture successful at what he does but is also well aware of the political context so what are the sort of broad thing broad comments i want to make about this well first of all he is competent i mean that's a, it might sound like a damning with the faintest of praise but in fact for government ministers not just in russia that's actually a pretty good place to start. In particular, his backstory shows himself to be quite a successful turnaround specialist. He can take institutions which are in crisis. I mean, the Rescue Corps, crisis because of all the the elements within it and the fact that its budgets were ridiculously small. And the Defence Ministry, different kind of crisis, but one in which you actually had the high command in almost open revolt against their political leadership. He managed to knit it back together without just simply surrendering to the generals very, very quickly, and I would say very, very effectively. So he understands how to do a variety of jobs and does them well. He does so, and this is, I think, unique within Russian politics, without making blood enemies. This is a very, very sharp-elbowed, vicious political environment And I honestly can't think of anyone else who's risen up to being a significant player within the system without making some kind of serious feuds, without having some people who would stab them just for the sheer undiluted joy of watching them bleed. Except Shoigu. Of course, he has allies, he has people who are not necessarily his allies. He has institutional rivals, and indeed, if he rises any further, he will have personal rivals too this isn't this isn't about a zero-sum struggle this is just the simple nature of politics when it comes down to it and again i really don't want this to sound like a lowest common denominator thing but he is everyone's least worst option if need be he's the person everyone can deal with can work with could live with so that's quite a skill and also it extends to making allies amongst institutions and particularly it's fascinating how he has built this close alliance with the Russian Orthodox Church, which I'll come back to that in a minute. Third key point is his skill in building a relationship with Vladimir Putin, which he didn't have in the past, and it wasn't a natural one. And frankly, really more than anything else, it's something that we've seen while he's been defence minister. But obviously that there was a relationship before then. He is not and was not one of Putin's inner circle, one of his muckers. And he hasn't tried to move straight in there in a way that would precisely risk generating pushback from those who are there. Instead, he's cultivated his own relationship with Putin. And one of the particular ways, remember, this is about personal relationships, is precisely taking Putin on long rambles, safaris, hikes, in the hills of Tuva, his own neighbourhood. And there it's quite interesting. On the one hand, there's obviously the inevitable PR dimension to it. He's always very, very aware of the need to make Putin the star. Shoigu is always there, but he's always in, in the background, really. He always allows Putin to shine, which is an important point. And although he's younger than Putin, in many ways what has emerged is almost like a kind of elder brotherly relationship. Um, he's, again, he seems to have handled that really quite skillfully. It's hard to know. I mean, obviously, Putin's personal relationships are very much stuff within the, the black box that we're having to infer from what we see. But nonetheless, the general consensus seems to be that that's worked out as actually quite a good relationship. And that's also an absolutely crucial political currency to have. The faith, of the trust of the boss. Now, does that mean that he's absolutely honest well, no one, let's be honest, in this system, you know, high up in this system, is absolutely honest. You know, he has a huge, sprawling dachan property, collections of samurai swords and so forth, which I can fully understand. And if one looks at where the money goes and comes from, well, I mean, his wife, Irina, runs a business tourism and promotions company called Expo EM, one of whose major clients, incidentally, is the Ministry of Emergency Situations. And I have no idea if it's true, but as it was told to me, you can, if you want to make sure that you have a better chance of getting some kind of government contract, then you take out a particularly good um, package with Expo EM in terms of you know, booths at military fairs and that kind of thing, and it gets your foot in the door. But again, what's really interesting here is that if one looks at other corruption cases, consider, for example, the allegations by Navalny against Viktor Zolotov, head of the National Guard. There, essentially, the claim is that Zolotov and his cronies are embezzling from Zolotov's own men and women, that they make money at the expense of the National Guardsmen. On the other hand, what happens here is there's no suggestion that Shoigu makes his money at the expense of ordinary Russians. It does not mean that the military get kit that they really don't want, or that soldiers end up with substandard food or anything like that. Instead, actually, the money is made at the expense of potential suppliers. So again, that says something, and it probably helps explain why Shoigu remains very popular even amongst the ranks. He makes his money, or so it seems, but not at the expense of his own guys, Is he a patriot? Well, of course he's a patriot. But is he, really, the question is, a nationalist? Well, I mean, his rhetoric is often very tough. But again, it's hard to know how far that's par for the course. The very fact that he wasn't enthused by the idea of sending the troops into Crimea or the Donbass, and in fact that the military has kept out of the Donbass as much as it can, when its forces are surged in to respond to Ukrainian government uh, victories, that's very much a short-term immediate response. Yes, GIU, military intelligence, I- is active there. But this is not in any way what one would think of as a Ministry of Defence operation. This is essentially a political slash spook operation. He has not wanted to. If he really had wanted to say, no, 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 let the army handle the Donbass, he probably could have got that. The fact that the army is not handling the Donbass implies that he didn't. So, again, this is a a man who seems to be a strong defender of his national interests, but not a blinkered, paranoid hawk, the way, let's be honest, there are quite a few figures around Putin who are indeed blinkered, paranoid hawks. So, of course, the big question is, could he be, would he be, may he be, one day, Russia's president? One of the old arguments against that was his ethnicity, the fact that he is not actually Russian. I'm not sure how crucial that is, because in a way I don't think that ordinary Russians don't see Shuigu as one of their own. It's interesting, again, he's been able to very much kind of take on the... The appearance, and I don't mean physical appearance, of a Russian, you know, whether it's in terms of wearing a, a nice uniform as defence minister, very, very uh, clearly aligning himself with the Russian Orthodox Church, and it was a, a very important moment in a 2015 Victory Day Parade, when he very demonstrably, as he passed under the icon of the sort of the gate, coming into Red Square, he crossed himself, and he's done that every time since. Now, That's not just simply an act of religious faith. That is a very demonstrative act of saying, I am within this community. Things like that, I think, do matter, do count over time. So I don't think his ethnicity rules him out. I don't think his views rule him out in any way. I think that his capacity to be able to combine an understanding of spectacle and substance, that it's important to sell things, whether it's the army or the MCHS, Giving them, I mean, things like giving the emergency situations guys decent uniforms and decent, for want of a better word, branding, which actually helped give them some kind of genuine cohesion. You know, things like that matter. They're ways in which actually substance and spectacle come together. He understands that. On the other hand, he doesn't really seem to be trying to position himself as such. There was a little point um, just over a year ago when, when it looked possible, but even then it was probably more, if anything, prime minister That, though, should not tell us too much. First of all, just generally, there is currently no job vacancy. Putin has made that very, very clear. And to be seen to be trying to angle for it would therefore be a challenge and no doubt be slapped down very much. But more broadly, the interesting thing about Shoigu is he never seems to have campaigned for anything that he's got. It always just seems to happen to descend upon him on wings wings of angels. So, in some ways, we probably wouldn't even really know. In part, he presumably does it precisely by behind-the-scenes lobbying and getting to talk to the right people. He also probably does it by, again, positioning himself so that when people are thinking, who can fill this gap, he seems to be the logical figure. I honestly don't know if he's going to end up being president, but it's worth noting, again, you know, as I said, he was born in 1955. He's definitely a younger political generation than Putin and Putin's immediate circle. He's got time. He's demonstrated that he can be loyal. He's demonstrated that he can be trusted. And that's going to be crucial. If Putin is actually going to hand over power to anyone else, it has to be someone whom he feels he can trust, because he will be basically literally placing his life in that person's hands. He has shown that he's tough in defence of the motherland, but not an extremist. And above all, he's shown he can get the job done. As you can see, I'm fairly enthusiastic. I, obviously, I, I would rather there be democratic elections and so forth. But given that I imagine that the next president of Russia, whoever and whenever that is, will essentially be an insider appointment that is managed by the Kremlin, they could do worse. Thanks very much indeed. There's one more cellcast yet to come in the uh, days of Shadowy Christmas and a few more little essays as well. I hope you're enjoying them so far, and I hope, as I say, that we have no all have a very happy new year. Товарищ праздник.